You're listening to the Denison Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Terman, the host and executive director of Denison Forum, sitting down again with Dr. Jim Denison, our founder and CEO. We're going to talk about culture, hope, biblical truth, and today we're going to talk about authority. So, Jim, good to see you again. How are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Good to be with you today as well. So grateful to have these conversations with you. Well, we hope that it's useful to our listeners and that uh, it'll be something that brings them clarity as well as direction and uh, just get to hear that so many times from different angles about uh, what you're doing and what we're doing and just so grateful to be able to do this and to have this opportunity to use a podcast as a way of helping people as well. Uh, What made you want to talk about authority? Where did that start bouncing around in your heart and mind? Yeah, thank you. Well, it's really on two levels. First of all, I've been recently doing a series in the sermons that I'm preaching on Sundays in the chapel where Janet and I attend church, uh, kind of a starting the new year sort of a deal, living your best life kind of a deal, a life God can bless. And so we've talked about living missionally. We've talked about using time effectively, about using your influence effectively. And I came to realize really at the foundation of all of that is living biblically. By that, I mean thinking biblically, acting biblically, living in obedience to Scripture, because God can't bless what harms his kids. You can't bless your kids if you know they're going to be harmed by what you do. can't give them the keys to the car if you know they're going to wreck the car and endanger their lives. And so if we won't live biblically, it's not legalism here. It's that we can't live a life that God can bless if we're not lined up with what's best for us. So that was one piece of it. And the other was something that occurred to me as I've been watching the news continue to unfold about the top secret classified documents, issues, relative to President Trump, then President Biden, then Vice President Pence, and who knows what else and what's next, right? Yeah, who yeah, who else, Who knows how many people are cleaning out their closets and their garages? These even days? as we speak, even as we <laughs> even speak. As we and speak. if they're not, they probably should yeah. be, you know? I'm looking around myself to see if I have any classified documents, you know? It's just, <laughs> it's just kind of this, who would have thought a few months ago, right? Just this crazy thing. Well, in the midst of all that, as everybody, you know, seeing all the different pundits in the deal and the, obviously the political rancor and all that, something that apparently hasn't occurred to anybody. I haven't seen anybody say this as, well, you know, he's the commander in chief. He should be above the law on this. This shouldn't matter. He should get to do with classified documents, whatever he wants. I mean, after all, he can classify them and unclassify them if he wants to. He's the leader of the free world. He's the most powerful person on the planet, we keep saying. So why does this apply to him? Why is this a big deal for him? I haven't heard anybody say that. I haven't heard Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden, Mr. Pence say that. I haven't heard their supporters say that. I haven't heard anybody say that because we understand that we're a nation of laws, not lords, as it were, right? That we're governed by the rule of law, not the rule of men. And so even the president is under authority in that sense. And we're grateful for that. We want that to be the case. Well, as you know, in the last few decades, culturally, that whole idea has come completely under fire. Now we live in this post-truth culture where you have your truth and I have my truth, uh, my body, my choice, as people keep saying. I can do what I want with my body as regards abortion to euthanasia, sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever the issue is. I mean, didn't the dictionary a few years ago, Oxford, call post-truth the word of the year? So we live in a culture that doesn't believe in authority, is my point. Even though the president has to live under authority, we don't believe in authority. So if we don't understand why we need to live under authority, we're not going to live under biblical authority. That's how those two come together. Why would I live under biblical authority if I don't want any authority, if I want to be my own authority? So all of that was in my in the background as I came together to have these thoughts, preach this sermon, and now have this conversation with you. Yeah, and it's and it's very important for us to understand. We'll get to this in a minute because the Bible has a lot to say about mm-hmm. authority and and about God as our king and the ultimate authority. You uh in recent months love to talk about, I love to hear you talk about Jesus being our king. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for he 
for Jesus to be our king. And referencing the the document uh, scandals, if you're mm-hmm. going to call them scandals, yeah. um, it, it wasn't all that way, always that way in history, right? right? There would there would have been a number of instances that we could talk about, including biblical history mm-hmm. relative to the to the Roman Empire and to the Caesars, where nobody would have questioned what documents he had or didn't have. Um, So it may be demoralizing to us in some way to see that our leaders would mishandle sensitive documents like this um, and and other experiences where uh, people uh, are held accountable by authority that can be demoralizing to us in some ways, but in all in other ways, it's really a good thing mm-hmm. to realize that we are trying to live out this uh, very unique principle that no one is above the law. As you said, that we are a nation of laws, not lords, uh, which is a very much at the, the heart of what the American experiment is all about, mm-hmm. and to try to live out the rule of law. And that means that People are the only way it has meaning is if that actual accountability gets transacted. It's kind of like the large scale version of what we talk about in parenting, right? You can you can make all kinds of parenting rules, but if you don't enforce right. the consequences or the rewards, mm-hmm. if you will, yeah. if if choices don't have actual outcomes that parents implement, then there really is no such mm-hmm. thing as parental authority, parental leadership, which is really uh, I was thinking about getting ready for this podcast and this conversation that we we run into authority and start grappling with it very early. We we run into it even as infants, I would think, from a physical mm-hmm. standpoint. We start yeah. learning lessons about natural law and the authority that comes with things like gravity and other simple physical laws of the universe. We start running into the authority of family and parents when we're small children and Parents are teaching us, don't run out in the middle of the road. And they're giving us guidance and authority that is intended to nurture, protect, and guide us. Uh, But in this particular case, we're talking about uh, spiritual authority or moral authority. And maybe I'll just get you to clarify right there. Are we talking, when we say spiritual authority, is that the same thing as moral authority? It's a great question. And and to put it in that context, if I could back up for just a second, say a couple things about what you just said and then get a running start at that. I'm I'm so glad you pointed that out. I think we Americans so take for granted the uniqueness of our American experiment. This idea that we're a nation of laws and not lords. I mean, back through history, how often would it have been the case? that a Caesar or a king or Napoleon or whomever would be caught up in a scandal about what documents he kept or didn't keep. But think about that even in today's context. I'm thinking back to Watergate, the resignation of President Nixon, because he was uh, he was soon to be impeached and probably convicted by the Congress. Well, that wouldn't have worked in Cuba. That wouldn't have happened in Russia. Wouldn't happen in China, right? I mean, I'd love to go to Israel. I've been there more than 30 times over the years. They last had elections nearly 20 years ago. The outcome wasn't what Mahmoud Abbas wanted it to be. There have been no election since. Hamas got themselves elected, and they're so unpopular in Gaza, they won't call elections. In most of the world that even has something like democracy, the democracy is itself a means to the end of the dictator. And so we just should be grateful as Americans. So we can have a conversation about classified documents and all of that and be frustrated, but be grateful that we're even in a world where that lives, right? But in our culture, I don't know that we understand the relationship between moral authority and spiritual authority. I do think that we have this sense that it's kind of like the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules, you know? Morality is what I say it is. The morality is what I believe it to be, that in a nation of laws, ultimately, it's the Supreme Court that would decide what is moral or isn't in a legal 
context, but nobody's thinking in a spiritual context there. They're asking what is moral or what is immoral relative to a body of secular laws, not in the context of spiritual or biblical authority. Quick example of that is nobody's thinking about making adultery illegal, so far as I know, even though spiritually we should be. Morally, we can't find a way to do that in the context of law. We can't figure out, and I think that's probably right. I'm no lawyer, but I think it's probably right. How would you make adultery illegal? How would you go about declaring that immoral from a legal point of view? And I don't know how you would do that on a practical level. Well, what are the extenuating circumstances here? What's, what's the definition of adultery? How does all of this work, and how would the courts get involved in all of that? So we make a distinction in our culture between moral slash legal authority and spiritual authority. And then when we separate Sunday and Monday and religion in the real world, now spiritual authority is a hobby. Spiritual authority might be for you, but I'm not a spiritual person anyway, right? Or I might be spiritual, but not religious, like so many people say. And so we've lost any spiritual foundation for moral authority. According to George Washington, that's a drastic mistake. In his farewell address, as you know, he said, of all the dispositions and habits essential to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And he added that we must take with great care any position that would say that we can have morality without religion. Thomas Jefferson said that. Benjamin Franklin said that. John Adams said our constitution is made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly unsuited to the governance of any other. So the founders believed that morality depended on religion and democracy depended on morality, which depended on religion. We've decoupled those things in our culture. We've created morality only around legality. If it's legal, it must be moral. We've lost the spiritual foundation. We therefore have no north on the compass. We have no map by which to govern, and we ought not be surprised that we are where we are as a result. And we we find ourselves living in a tension, right, where, uh, as you say, the founders were trying to lay out this framework of uh, spiritual authority as the foundation of moral and civil authority, but at the same time, um, we, we had this reality where they were trying to make a clear distinction where there would be a free church and a free state. Right and trying to protect the freedom of conscience um, and the part of the, the faith family that you and I emerged from, the Baptist part of this, were very much a part of leading this conversation, the formation of the Bill of Rights, that type of thing mm-hmm. that said, you know, uh, we, we're going to try to build a country in which uh, uh, religion is not a litmus test for participation right. and for leadership. Expressly not. Because we believe, no. expressly not, mm-hmm. and we believe that Faith can only be genuine if it is freely chosen. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to try to create a community where we can all live together in uh, some kind of harmony and mutual thriving. But that doesn't mean you have to believe a certain thing or a certain way. You, can, you have the right to believe nothing at all. Um, and, and so we have that tension as well. And getting back to your point, I was recently doing some reading, that uh, some things that you had written and some other things. Uh, where the idea of legislating things like mm-hmm. adultery, it's actually been tried. Mm-hmm. It was tried in Massachusetts sure. in the early days of that colony mm-hmm. by the Puritans. And, um, you, the you Scarlet could be, A, remember that. Yeah, you, Scarlet Letter. Yeah, yeah. You, could be, you, could be, uh, you could be jailed or even mm-hmm. possibly killed mm-hmm. for such, such things as adultery, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't the only thing, right. but it was certainly one of the things. So it has been tried before, um, but we, we're struggling to figure out how to live in that tension. Right. Absolutely. Of freedom of conscience, freedom of conscience, and yet have some kind of substantial foundation to our shared 
civility and morality. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Because we're in a day today that I just don't imagine the forefathers could have understood. In their context, you're absolutely right. A free church and a free state is absolutely their goal. But I do believe that there was a consensual religious morality that was part of their worldview. Even out of their enlightenment experience, even as secular as many of them were in their own personal lives, they didn't understand the kind of pluralism that we live with. How could they have 200 years ago, 250 years ago? How could they have understood to be in a culture as pluralistic as we are now? And so now we're trying to continue the experiment of a free church and a free state and have a consensual morality without a religious foundation. But we're in a day now where we can't even decide what life is, can't decide when life begins, can't decide how marriage ought to be defined, can't decide how death ought to be understood. Basic, foundational, massive ethical issues are now in question in a way they just weren't 250 years ago. I mean, demonstrably, categorically, just were not. And so now we're in a day where we're continuing this experiment, where we need a kind of a moral religious foundation for democracy, but we're understanding morality so differently. And understanding truth itself so differently. And in that world, I really think it's an open question. The degree to which all of this works itself out. One quick example of that that we talk about all the time is the collision between religious freedom and sexual freedom. In a day when I ought to have the freedom to stand up against LGBTQ beliefs, the other person could say, yes, but I ought to have the freedom to live according to my LGBTQ beliefs. Okay, fine. You go your way. I'll go my way. What do we do when I want to make a website? company, and you want me to make a website for your gay marriage, for your gay wedding, which is before the Supreme Court right now, or I want to do a bake shop, and you want me to make a cake for your same-sex wedding, which is the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case that's continuing in the courts. What do you do when the two come together, when they come into collision? The Founding Fathers did not give us guidance for what to do when a web designer doesn't want to make a website for a same-sex wedding. We just don't find that constitutional guidance here. And further, we don't find the kind of moral north on the compass decreed to us that gives us an easy way to solve that. So we're very pragmatic people. Pragmatism was invented by American philosophers back in the 1870s, a whole movement called pragmatism. Truth is what works. Charles Sanders Peirce and uh, uh, William James, John Dewey were kind of the leaders of all of that. That's held us together pretty well. Truth is what works. What do you do when what works for you doesn't work for me? That's where we are right now. And we're legislating this case by case, piece by piece, bit by bit. And who knows how this ultimately is going to work itself out. Do you think, um, do you think that that is the, just the way that we're going to work out our consensual uh, morality? Uh, or, because there, there just doesn't seem to be any other way other than this case by case. Because um, as, as you were saying, some would, in the, in the case of what's before the Supreme Court, the Masterpiece Cake story, Obviously, there's this one line of thinking that says, well, the answer here is to, to group it to civil rights. We've talked mm -hmm. about this before, right. that um, being, uh, being gay is the same thing as being of an ethnicity, mm -hmm. and it should be seen in that way, and so it should be attached to civil rights legislation. It should be seen in that same lens, and there's very strong arguments to the counter of that. But do you think that the path forward is just going to be this really hard, messy, plotting experience of case by case? And, and can we anticipate that that might at some point just kind of settle into some kind of renewed or revised shared understanding? Or is it 
likely to be more contentious than that? Yeah, isn't that a great question? Really, I think there are two roads to uh, kind of a binary way on the road with all sorts of implications along the way. And I think you've sketched them out really well. The first is to see it as a civil right. Well, that's a pretty simple solution here. Back in the 60s, it wasn't difficult to say, okay, here's white majority, ethnic minority, two different classes. Let's elevate ethnic minorities to have the same civil rights as white majority. Let's apply that to LGBTQ. We're done. They have the same civil rights as ethnic minorities do. And a cake shop has, does not have the legal ability to say, I won't make a cake for an African-American wedding. So they, by definition, don't have the ability to say no to a cake for a same-sex wedding. And we're done. Part of the problem with that is not only all the, as you said, all of the cases against doing this that way and all the challenges inside, it's that LGBTQ as a coalition is at war with itself relative to civil rights. Um, just pick the T up within LGBTQ. You have transgender rights over here and women's rights here in the context of women's athletics. So a biological male, according to the T of this, has a civil right to choose to claim himself to be a female and compete against females. Now, females are losing all of the advantages that have been gained to them over decades of work to try to give them equality in women's athletics, so equal access to women's scholarships, equal ability to be able to compete as men. Now, women are losing. Women's civil rights are being lost to transgender civil rights. So making it a civil rights answer is messy in a way. It's not with ethnicities. I'm not aware of any arguments that black civil rights were privileged over Latino civil rights or Asian civil rights or uh, Korean civil rights. I'm not aware that there was a context in which part of an ethnic minority was privileged over others. But with T versus women, that's exactly what's happening right now. Most of the argument I'm seeing against transgender civil rights is being led by feminists, many of whom are very irreligious, a number of whom would say that they're atheists. They're in no sense making a religious argument here. So that's one place where that answer to this just breaks down, and I think will continue to break down. I've heard a number of legal scholars say that transgenderism is the Achilles heel of the LGBTQ civil rights equality movement for the reasons we're describing right now. So the other fork in the road is, okay, we're going to have to do this piecemeal case by case. It's not so simple as to say it's just a blanket civil rights conversation. We're going to have to do this down the way. The way I think that's, well, the way it's sorting itself out about abortion right now is doing it by democracies. We're at a place where the Supreme Court says we're not going to do this by fiat, just like we're not going to do the other conversation by fiat, elevate this to civil rights in the context of the 1964 civil rights legislation and be done with it. That's not going to happen. So because there's no fiat that the federal government's going to impose on abortion rights, now it's state by state, as you know. It's in some places city by city, county by county, and we're going to sort ourselves out into not just do you live in Austin or do you live in Midland in the context of Texas? What part of Austin do you live in? What part of Midland do you live in? What part of Dallas do you choose to live in? That's the way it seems to be sorting itself out over here. And so long as we have a Supreme Court that I think rightly does not wish to legislate from the bench, they're going to continue to resolve these issues as narrowly as possible with as little implication for the future as possible. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was right when she said Roe v. Wade overreached and got into legislation and solved problems that it wasn't intended to address. I think the court's not going to do that under Roberts. I, his, his desire very much is to be an incrementalist, very much to be a minimalist, not to create any more precedent than they have to. So for the foreseeable future, that does seem to be the direction we're going, is to more and more messiness, more and more contention, more and more legislation, because the courts are how we resolve moral issues, absent spiritual authority. And that's where our culture seems right. to be these days. Right. 
One more question, then I want to move to some other aspects about authority that, that you wrote about and spoke about. Uh, you said to me recently that you thought that it would come down to, you read some others that thought it would come down to, I think you referenced this a minute ago, the, the battle between religious freedom and sexual freedom. Yeah. And in a conversation we had a, a couple of weeks ago, you said there are those that say that, you know, given that if that is really where the battle line ultimately comes, that sexual freedom will win and defeat religious freedom because of the strength of human sexual desire. Can you comment on that a little bit? That's really uh, disturbing <laughs> on a lot of levels. Um, but talk about that. Just if it if that's really where the battle line is between um, our religious freedom and sexual freedom. How do where do you see that we are in that? Anything else you want to say about that and and what that means for us, if that is the battle line. Yeah, thank you. That's Chuck Colson's observation. There may be of others as well, but where I first saw it was something he predicted a long time ago, Charles Colson, that that was inevitably going to be where we were going to go in a pluralistic, secularized culture that has no moral north on the compass to resolve this, that that's ultimately where the battle lines were going to be drawn between religious freedom and sexual freedom. And he made the same argument that we're making here today, that the sexual impulse being what it is in an irreligious culture, in an increasingly secularized culture that the sexual freedom impulse was going to win. One piece that's inside that is that our culture has gotten to a place, I'm afraid even a lot of evangelicals are at this place, where we're deciding that really what it comes down to is we want the courts to give us the right to be wrong. That what sexual liberty, or excuse me, religious liberty means today, what First Amendment religious freedom expression means today is that we get to claim the religious right to be culturally wrong that it's culturally wrong to be unwilling to make a website for LGBTQ weddings, that it's culturally wrong to be unwilling to make a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding celebration, just as it would be if it was an Asian or a Hispanic or whatever. And so all we have left to claim is a First Amendment right to be wrong. It's hard to make that prevail just on the merits. Over time, ultimately, societies tend to want their laws to align with what they consider to be right. That's what happened with Bob Jones back in the 1980s when they wanted the right to be wrong relative to interracial dating on their campus, if I remember properly. And the IRS came along to say, well, look, we confer 501c3. It's our choice to do that. You are no longer aligned with what they called settled public policy vis-a-vis -vis the 1964 civil rights legislation. And so you can no longer have 501c3 status if you won't amend your policies because we won't give you the right to be wrong. And Bob Jones, at least at the time, chose to give up the 501c3 status rather than amend their policies relative to interracial dating. It's those kinds of places. It's going to be what the NCAA does with Oral Roberts basketball program. It's going to be what the Society for or, uh, American Academy of Religion does with religion professors at Baylor University or at Dallas Baptist University. We're going to see it in all, first of all, in all of these Voluntary organizations, these private organizations, they can do what they want. NCAA can kick anybody out it wants to, anytime it wants to. It doesn't even need a justification for doing so. And so they're not going to give you the right to be wrong, is what I'm saying. Cultures we, typically tend not uh, to do that. Yeah, so are we seeing an example of that? You and I live in Dallas, and uh, somewhat by default and by choice, that means that the local sports teams are our sports teams, right? Yeah, whether we and like so it or not. That makes... That makes us Dallas Maverick fans, and uh, as we're recording this, uh, big news in the NBA yeah. is that 
the Mavericks just traded for Kyrie Irving, mm-hmm. and Kyrie Irving is a phenomenal basketball player, but uh, has an interesting presence in the culture, having in recent days, months, uh, said some things that are pretty controversial, such as the world is flat mm-hmm. and uh, the Holocaust didn't happen and uh, other things of that nature. And the conversation uh, in the midst of this trade has been, well, can the culture, particularly now the culture of Dallas uh, Maverick basketball, can it tolerate, will it give Kyrie Irving, quote-unquote, the right to be wrong Mm -hmm. while he is being a basketball player for this particular team that we we like uh, locally? Yeah. Is that, is that essentially what's going on? Is it about giving Kyrie Irving the right to be wrong? It's a great question, and I think it is. I think that our culture to this point has said, okay, you have the right to deny the Holocaust, horrifically, horrifically. You have the right to claim the world is flat if you want to. You can do that, okay? Now, we're going to give you the right to be wrong so long as it doesn't hurt us. That's where our culture is. That's where our pragmatic culture is at this point. It doesn't hurt me for you to call the world flat, so I guess I'm going to let you do that. I'll just give you the right to be wrong. But if it hurts me... That's when you no longer have the right to be wrong, whether it's a same-sex wedding cake or a same-sex website or whatever that might be. My prediction here is we're so pragmatic, we'll give Kyrie Irving the right to be wrong as long as he keeps scoring 27 points a game. As long as he keeps shooting 90.9% from the free throw line, we'll give him the right to be wrong. I doubt we would have traded for a marginal player who thought the earth was flat and denied the Holocaust and was going to bring all of the cultural issues that are going to come to bear in Dallas, even more than was the case in New York. But pragmatics win, right? So we'll give you the right to be wrong so long as it doesn't hurt me is where I think we are. So all that back to your question. First of all, the sexual impulse versus the religious impulse in a secularized culture, plus just who we are as fallen human beings, right? Wouldn't you expect that Chuck Colson would be right and that the sexual freedom impulse would win over the religious freedom impulse? And then second, if the religious freedom impulse is built on a desire and a claim that I have the First Amendment right to be wrong, my prediction is that over time cultures just don't forever give people the right to be wrong, especially when it hurts them, which is what so many of our rights to be wrong claims are perceived to be doing. You could add a third piece very quickly, Mark, to that, and that is that we as a culture have been built around being a republic rather than a democracy with an enormous sympathy for the minority, and that should be as it is. So grateful it is what it is. We're not simply a majority rules kind of a culture. I mean, that's why the founders gave so many protections to minorities, and that's why the Bill of Rights exists. Well, if the LGBT community is seen as a minority that is being victimized by the majority's desire and insistence on the right to be wrong, our culture is even more going to be opposed to that right to be wrong. Not only are you hurting people, you're hurting a minority. You're hurting a victimized minority by your desire to be wrong or your willingness to be wrong and your desire that we give you the right to be wrong and give give you 501c3 protections and give you uh, access to NCAA basketball tournaments and give you free access to the culture. I just don't see how long the culture is going to move in that direction, given those kind of rubrics that surround the issue. Right. So let's, let's talk about this from, uh, from a biblical standpoint, as you spoke and wrote about recently about authority. There's not a time uh, when somebody, you know, you don't get to your 10th birthday and uh, after the wed- after the birthday cake and all the celebration, you don't sit down and say, okay, mom and dad, I need to choose my moral authority. Right. 
I need to choose my <laughs> spiritual authority for the rest of my life. We don't have conversations like that. I've never had um, any. Although my granddaughter not, is so brilliant that yeah, at age they, nine, that I might mean, be, that coming, could be coming. Right? I don't know. You know. That could be coming. That's right. Yeah, she'll probably suggest it to you. Probably. Right? Probably yeah. tell me what mine should be. So exactly. You know. But you you talked about and and uh, spoke about uh, choosing the Bible as your authority, mm-hmm. as both your spiritual and moral authority. So. I want to talk to you about that as something we would advocate for, obviously, and uh, why that's important. But I want to expand that conversation a little bit, if we could, at the beginning and talk about um, the authority that comes from prayer, Hmm. from the Bible, from the church. And then if we have time, maybe we'll get to the general authority that comes from the community that we live in. whether that's, you know, we're talking about a city or even a country that we live in. But talk about a little bit the authority, the, the, the nuances and the distinctions between the authority that might be experienced in our prayer life mm-hmm. as an exercise of faith. You talk a lot about prayer mm-hmm. and the need to spend time with God every day mm-hmm. and to listen for His voice, this belief that we have as Christians that God is actively involved in our life every day, that we have this gift of prayer that the Bible speaks so deeply about. Uh, what is what are the some of the distinctions we need to think about and understand? Because you and I have talked about this in different contexts before. We we no longer in our culture say, I this is what I believe. We now say this is what I feel. Right. And that easily translates into uh, people's understanding and practice of prayer. Give us some of the nuance between the authority that we should understand through our prayer life versus that of what we see in the Bible versus that of what we would hope to experience in a local congregation that we are a part of. That's a great question. It really is. I haven't thought about it quite in those terms, but I'm really glad you did that that way and framed it that way. My first thought uh, is to move to what philosophers call channels of epistemology. Isn't that exciting? Don't you think everybody yeah. right now listening okay, to this none is of us, thrilled? Jim, none of us aren't can they, spell that aren't word. Aren't they just so. thrilled that finally <laughs> we're getting to channels of epistemology? I've been waiting this whole yes. podcast for finally somebody to do this, and now finally we're here. That's exactly the part I need. Man, right? aren't we so grateful for this? I mean, nobody is turning this off right now. Nobody is rolling their eyes or looking for sports. Or, what, what's this Kyrie Irving thing no. you're talking about? You know, That's not happening. No. no. Everybody wants to talk. I get all the time. Tell me more about channels of epistemology all the time. But nonetheless, but we, you know, not to be a little diverted here. Channels of epistemology are how you know what you know. Epistemology comes from the Greek word episteme, meaning knowledge. It's a word about knowledge. So it has to do with how you know what you know. Just a fancy word for all that. Three ways you know what you know are the rational, practical, intuitive. You do math rationally. You start a car practically. Push the button, turn the key, and it starts. Unless you're an automotive engineer, in which case you do it rationally. You do it because you understand why pushing the button or turning the key. I could tell you that I'm a 65 Mustang. I have no idea how that works on my car today. So I'm starting my car practically. We're having this conversation pragmatically. I have no idea how the technology works that makes this happen. If I did, we'd be doing it rationally. So we do some stuff rationally, some practically, some intuitively. I We, make some, we like people or don't like people, typically intuitively. You could do it pragmatically based on what they do for you. You could do it rationally on a cost-benefit analysis, I guess, but usually – relationships function in kind of this intuitive sort of a way. Well, we all do all three of those, although one of those tends to dominate our personality. I'm highly rational. Doesn't mean I'm smart. I don't mean that. Just I think I make decisions based on rational principles primarily. 
uh, Jeff Bird, I've worked with for 34 years. You know Jeff. Uh, essentially runs our day-to-day ministries. Highly pragmatic. His background's in engineering. He has an MBA. He's the guy in the room that'll ask the question, well, how are we going to pay for that? Where are we going to find the time for that? I don't want to think about that. I wish he wouldn't ask that question, but I'm glad he does. My wife is incredibly intuitive, really good at just sensing right from wrong and being very discerning and all that. Always good to have people in your life that are what you aren't, right? Just in terms of being able to kind of balance all that. But in terms, all that to say, in terms of your question, where does authority lie in the context of personal prayer relationships, personal intuition with God? I would suggest that you do them in the order of the rational, then the practical, then the intuitive. So I'm having an intuitive experience with God. I sense that God is leading me to go do X. Measure that pragmatically, practically. Talk to people that can help you think about the context of that, the circumstances of that, uh, the um, just the pragmatic results of all of that. But ultimately, take it rationally to Scripture. God will never lead you contrary to his word. Does this sense line up with Scripture? Does this sense make sense biblically? Try to see if you can get practical and and rational kind of um, evidence for this, uh, kind of substantiation for this. Talk to people who are more rationally wired or pragmatically wired than you are if they're primarily intuitive and get some help around all that. Don't launch out just based on an intuitive sense as though that were your final authority. Your feelings are not your final authority. As my youth minister used to say was in high school, that your feelings are the caboose, not the engine. They're supposed to get dragged along by the engine, not to be the engine, right? Your feelings can depend on the pizza you had for supper last night or how much sleep you got or uh, if you're worried about the Super Bowl or whatever it might be. And so absolutely pay attention to your feelings. Know that God leads us intuitively. Paul had his Macedonian vision, right? Um, Joseph had his dreams. I mean, God does do that. But measure the intuitive by the practical and especially the rational of Scripture. And then you're putting your feelings under the authority, first, of Scripture. And second, of the community of faith in that pragmatic sense. Uh, We believe in the priesthood of every believer, but we sometimes forget about the priesthood of all believers. That the way to measure the individual is against the collective. To see what is God saying to the body, not just to a part of the body. Do all that together, and I think we have our best chance to be under authority as God intends. Okay, so that... Yeah, so now maybe epistemology does matter more to okay? So because that's that's Glad really helpful that. from the yes, really helpful from the standpoint. That was of my saying, goal, okay, by the way, is to make you like. Yeah, I know it was your yeah. yeah, and the exam is coming that's as soon right. as this podcast that's is exactly over, right? right yes. And yeah, but it's really helpful to understand that those three categories of epistemology really makes us sound smart. Yeah, but it does. That is the way we live. This is how we know everything. Right. right? Uh, and it's just, it's not good or bad. It's not Christian or non-Christian. It's just the way human beings operate, okay? And this idea that we are we are experiencing life and making decisions and understanding reality through uh, this intuitive sense, this rational sense, and this pragmatic sense. Um, and then lining those up with the intuitive being related to our prayer life, the pragmatic being related to our interaction with the community and asking for their guidance, wisdom, and input, right. shared input in that, which is why every believer needs to be in a community of faith. Right. Uh, and then the rational. Uh, is it really um, not worthwhile to try to sit back and say, well, I can understand all three of those, but they're not equally weighted? Mm. Uh, I, I, I think of a, an old Oklahoma preacher named Preacher Hollock, who oh, yes. uh, his daughter was a member of one of my churches, mm. and she gave me his um, uh, his autobiography. Might have been 
one of the only books he wrote, just or maybe the only book he wrote, but it's the first time I ever heard somebody say, you know, if it comes down to me praying to God or me reading the Bible, I'm always going to opt for reading the Bible because what God has to say to me is more important than what I have to say to him. Hmm. Is it is it really not really worthwhile to sit back and say, well, of all of these three things, the intuitive, the uh, the pragmatic and the rational, the Bible, the church, and the prayer. We we shouldn't. We should or should not weight them equally. Is that is there even any value in that conversation? Good question. That's more the Wesleyan direction, where you had this idea of you have scripture, you have tradition, you have reason. That's kind of the three legged stool, you know. And on a three legged stool, you need all three of those. Uh, it's kind of the Catholic impulse, the idea that the Bible was given through the church, so the church is the means by which the Bible is to be interpreted. And now the creeds and councils of the church become equal in authority. Now, as a means of interpreting the Bible, we want to be fair to the Catholic tradition here, but nonetheless become authority in your life as well. And sometimes one would say equal authority. It's a sense in which the Bill of Rights is equal in authority to the Constitution that it amends. You know, it's a way of looking at all of that. Supreme Court rulings are equal in authority to the Constitution that they're supposed to be based on. And so uh, you can kind of look, I think, at it at that point. I would myself be reluctant to have that three-legged stool and have all three of them be equal in length, as it were, you know. Uh, so that in Wesleyan terms, you've got reason, you've got tradition, you've got scripture as equal to all three. I think the foundation of it has to be biblical. Someone said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, to which someone else said, no, God said it, and that settles it, whether I believe it or not. And so I really want to say that the Bible is God preaching, that the Bible is God's unchanging authority, that the Bible's the foundation by which to measure what the community wants to do and what I want to do. If I'm going to put community at the same level as scripture, well, you've got Jim Jones. You've got cults. You've got all sorts of horrific community authority out there that would be equal to Scripture if you're going to go that direction. You've got individuals doing all sorts of horrible things that they're convinced God is leading them to do that would be equal in authority. And how do you say no to that if these three are all going to be of equal length on the stool or all of equal authority? So I would say Scripture comes first, probably community comes second, and I think I come third. I think I need to measure God's word in my voice by what the community says and most of all what Scripture says. Now, very quickly, and you know how complex these things get very quickly, it's not so simple as to say that you don't need community and intuitive to interpret Scripture. It's not so simple as to say that the Bible doesn't have to be interpreted by the individual in the context of the community. The Catholic Church is right. God did give the Bible through the church. It is true that the church is a means, I wouldn't say the means, that's why I'm not a Catholic, but a means by which the Bible should be interpreted. That's why I've got so many commentaries on my shelf. That's why I want to pay attention to what 20 centuries of Christians have thought about that text. That's why I don't want to say history started today and leave the pragmatic out and just get the intuitive interpretation of the objective word of God. Nor do I want to leave out the individual. Or else once I'm in a community, now I don't have the Holy Spirit working in my life. Now, I don't have this idea that the Holy Spirit can speak the Word of God into my life and interpret Scripture to me. That's, again, I'm not I'm so grateful for Catholic tradition, but that's why I'm not a Catholic, because I believe what makes us different than lawyers who need to go to law school to interpret the Constitution or doctors who need to go to medical school to practice medicine is we have the Holy Spirit to interpret Scripture to us. And so I think you need all three of those in balance. But the way I would look at it would just say Scripture would be the foundation of that. And then I get to the pragmatic and then the intuitive as the means of interpreting and applying the scripture. Bottom line for me, not only when I preach or I teach, but when I'm making decisions, I want to know what the text intends to say. Then I want to know how the Holy Spirit wants to apply that in my life. That to me is the only two questions that ultimately matter. 
What does the text intend to say? What does the Holy Spirit intend to say from that text in my life today? Now, it takes the community. It takes a lot of prayer and a lot of objective study to get to that place. So they all three go together. But I would say Scripture would be foundational to the other two. Well, that and that makes me, uh, just as we get ready to wrap up, leads me down this idea because you know we talk a lot and encourage a lot through the Denison Forum that people would be people of the Word of God, mm-hmm. that they would... Uh, that they would saturate themselves with the Word of God in a humble spirit of prayer, and and yes, in the context of a church, um, we sometimes uh, seem to bump into this idea that uh, we believe in in our tradition in the priesthood of every believer that every believer has the ability to relate to God directly through Jesus Christ and through His Word. Uh, it's a relatively recent reality in Christian history that we have the kind of access to the Bible mm-hmm. that we have. True. didn't used to be that way, and for most of Christian history, uh, people didn't have a copy of the Word of God in a, on a device in their pocket where they could access the Bible at any time they wanted to. I had a conversation with a family member just recently where we were talking about the Apostle Paul and, um, and, and how when you're reading the book of Acts and his letters, it, it feels like it happened, well, this happened on Tuesday, and then Thursday this happened, and then 10 days later that happened, when actually what you're reading is something that unfolds over about 30 years. Mm-hmm. And if you don't realize that, then you're probably not going to read it correctly. And was just an indication of, you know what, we do need leaders who have been trained, right. and uh, and most believers are not called to, nor do they have the time to go get those kinds of level of training, even if they have time and hopefully are reading the Bible consistently on their own. But it's a re- relatively recent thing yeah, is. for any, you know, for believer X, Y, or Z to have that kind of access to the Bible. And there's still places in the world where they don't no have that kind no of doubt. access yeah. and they need their leaders. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, it's it's one of those things of trying to help people to to say you know what I'm grateful that I have prayer nobody can ever keep me from praying I always have that intuitive opportunity no matter what my circumstances in most cases hopefully I have ready access to the Word of God the rational part of this I should engage that um, but if I don't have access to the Word of God and I have access to a church or to a leader who does. I can learn with and through them. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't give them blind obedience right. like they like people did with Jim Jones and mm-hmm. with other figures that we could talk about. We don't give them blind obedience, but we do recognize that they are part of God's gift to the church and to us, and we should value that and appreciate that. Am I am I on the right track? Uh, I, I think so, absolutely, Mark. And that's where we're Baptist, but not in term, but not only Baptist, right? We're Baptist right. to the degree we emphasize priesthood of every believer, but we also understand the priesthood of all believers and the collective sense of this. Uh, one thing that comes along with the priesthood of, of every believer is the idea of local church autonomy and the idea of a kind of a democratic or congregational sort of uh, way of doing church. Because, again, we don't think that the pastor or the bishop or a cardinal or whomever ought to be able to tell us what pastor we can and can't call, what property we can own, who can be our leader. All of that. So the priesthood of every believer works itself into the priesthood of all believers in this kind of balance. And isn't that a messy balance? It will always be a messy balance between me and us, between the individual and the collective. Uh, It's like Paul's analogy, we're the body of Christ, so we have hands and feet and eyes and ears. 
Well, there are times when my hand takes precedence. Right now it does, actually. I've got some uh, kind of little painful cuts on my thumb here. And my thumb right now is taking precedence over the rest of my body in ways I wish it wouldn't. If you've had a significant toothache, you understand how a tooth can take precedence, right? But that doesn't mean that you are a tooth or you are a thumb or you are what that one piece is. There's a, com there's a communal kind of a collectivism here. That's how God designed all of this. So at the end of the day, I think we start by saying, Lord, teach me how to know your word and apply it to my life. Help me to do that and trust that he's better at answering that question than we are praying it. He wants us to know his will more than we do. And through his word, through his people, through his spirit, he will guide us if we're willing to be guided. And that's the good news. And the whole point of this, as you say so beautifully and so often, is this is what it means for Jesus to be your king. Right. And what we see in the Bible, the best of what we see in the Bible, is people uh, living their lives with Jesus being their king. And so much in our culture is about people uh, looking at Jesus as a hobby. Mm -hmm. um, some of them not even doing that, mm -hmm. but so many just seeing Jesus as a hobby when the real call is for Jesus to be our king mm -hmm. in every way and in everything and in every day, right? I think that's right. You know, to extend that analogy very briefly, I know we're about out of time here. I used to play a lot of golf. I can't do that much anymore with this back condition, but used to have a lot. And so the golf pro at the golf country club was king when I was playing golf. He got to make the rules. He got to decide who got on the course, who didn't. If you took lessons from him, he was the lesson giver. You were the lesson taker. Everybody understood. Most of them played in the big courses anyway, played on the tour at one point. And so he's the king of the golf course. But when I leave the golf course, he's no longer king of any other dimension of my life. I absolutely submit to his authority as long as I'm conducting the hobby over which he's my king. And I choose that. I want him to be king of the golf course. What do I know about watering greens? What do I know? about maintaining a golf course. I want him to be that king, but as a means to my end, and only so long as I'm on the course. When I leave the course, he loses all relevance. I'm afraid, intuitively, more than practically, more than intentionally. That's how so many people my whole career have looked at me. I'm the head pro of the country club that they've chosen to join. They join and they pay their dues for benefits received. They want me and our staff to be really good at our jobs, so we can teach them lessons, so that we can have a great restaurant, so that we can operate a terrific swimming pool, so that we can have a sauna over here and a health club over there. And they're coming as customers for what they receive for the dues that they pay. And they want me as the CEO of the country club to be really good at my job. But when they leave the country club, none of that's relevant to the rest of their lives. I don't know where that analogy breaks down in how most Americans understand their experience with the church and the body of Christ today. A good word and something for our folks to think about. Jim, thank you for your time and for this conversation today. I hope it's helpful to our audience. And uh, just want to say again to our listeners, thank you for being a part of these conversations. If it's been helpful to you, please rate and review us on your podcast platform. Share it with others so that they can find out about the Denison Forum podcast. And we look forward to seeing you the next time Thank you for being a part. God bless you.